Thank you. Good morning. It's really, really brilliant to be back here. It's great to be back in South London as well. Lovely little drive. I live in the north of England now. I live in a place called Northwood, which is near Watford. And um, driving back over past my school and other, it's just nice to be back. And I had a brilliant video to show you about who the Evangelical Alliance are. For some reason, it's not working, so I'm just going to tell you. Because sermons aren't excuses to advertise ministry, right? But I want to tell you about the ministry. So we'll do that, then we'll stop, and then I can crack on with what God's put on my heart, if that's okay. But um, the Evangelical Alliance was started in 1846 in order to bring Christians together so that we could be united in mission and have a clear and coherent voice into society. Now, it's been a really hard last few weeks in the UK, hasn't it? There's never been a more important time for us to be united, actually. And it's never been a more important time to show what difference it makes when you're a Christian. Because, don't get me wrong, many people are, are, are pleased about, say, Brexit. Many people are disappointed. But whatever you feel, the grave is still empty. Jesus is still alive. And as Christians, it's got to look different. It's got to look different how we respond at this time. It's got to look different how we interact with society. You know, because um, the temperature is being raised on Christianity in the UK. We're not being persecuted. Let's not be ludicrous. But the temperature is being raised. We are being more closely looked at, and we are being pressurised a little. You know, shown recently by um, Ofsted are thinking of going into youth groups and Sunday schools. That's a very bizarre move. I think you should get the school system sorted first. But as well as that, <laughs> public assessment of private religion, I was unaware I'd moved to North Korea. And I think it's an interesting time in the UK. I was preaching the other Sunday um, in a park in Bedford. There are about 500 people there. And um, I felt the Lord say to me during the worship, don't preach like a lion in a church and a mouse in a park, right? So I got up and I gave it some, and it was fun. And we saw some people come to faith, and there was this guy in the, coffee, in the cafe over there who was having a cup of tea and a donut, right? And he gave his life to Jesus. He wasn't even there for church. It was fun. But I was driving home, I was driving home afterwards, and I just had this sense, won't be able to do that forever. And that's okay. While we can, we will, but we won't be able to do that forever because Christianity is getting a little marginalized in the UK. I had another experience recently. I was, I was preaching at The Sun. You know the newspaper? I was preaching at their headquarters. They did this evangelistic outreach event. That was fun. And I was preaching at that, and um, one of the chief lawyers at The Sun is a Christian. So I said to him afterwards, I said, how does your newspaper view me? He says, narrow-minded, extremist bigot. I said, thank you. I said, how do you view me? He says, child of the living God, living out your God-given calling. Christianity is getting viewed differently, but grave is still empty, Jesus is still alive, and truth is still truth. But we've got to love people too. And at the Evangelical Alliance, we're a collection of 3,800 churches, 80 denominations, and 750 organizations who simply speak into society and say, this is a Christian view, but then hope to unite the church in mission so that more people are reached. Because you know what? The UK is not finished with for the gospel. There's so much to come. So it's exciting to be there. I've got... Um, a few leaflets over there on the table, just a bit more about it. EA, you might want a few emails and stuff we do that will help you understand some of what's going on and what to pray for. There's loads to pray for at different times, but great things are happening. I've also got uh, three books. There's no quality control. I've written them all. Um, but just to clarify one thing, if you buy any, every penny goes to the Evangelical Alliance. I've never made a penny from any book I've written because why write about reaching people and keep the money? That makes no sense. So if you're giving, it's a donation to the ministry and you might think at those prices it feels like I'm stealing from the ministry, in which case, just give more. But the first one, um, it's called Disappointed with Jesus. Why do so many young people give up on God? You know, if we want to see this nation change, the first thing to do is shut the back door of the church. We lose too many of our young people. 86% of people who come to faith are under 25. How do we keep those young people? Retail's at 7.99. Let's not be silly. You're clearly my friends. 
five pounds. Second one, um, stumbling blocks. My wife Anne and I wrote a book about called Stumbling Blocks that basically is against the fact that Christianity is presented to younger people as a Disney princess film. You come to faith, you live happily ever after. It's nonsense. Life is really hard. And we've got to start being real. You know, it's this stuff. Come to faith and you'll have everything you want. You'll never get sick. Everything will be perfect. It's nonsense. That's heaven. That's not now. Jesus is real. Life is hard. Keep going. So we wrote down about 11 of the stumbling blocks that have knocked those maybe under 40 from church who've left. Things like hating church, broken dreams, feeling sceptical and cynical, all kinds of other things. And at the end is a soft prayer of recommitment that basically says, life is hard, Jesus is real. Hop, wobble, skip, just don't stop. Keep following Jesus. We've known a load of people come back to faith through that. You might want to get it for someone who's left the church. Retail's at $7.99, let's not be silly, you know where I'm going, five pounds. Finally, <laughs> this book came out in April, it's called Game Changers. And my wife and I wrote this simply to say, how does an encounter with God give us the confidence to transform our nation? Because en- enough of all the negativity, enough of saying things are in decline. We could see the United Kingdom transformed for Jesus. What does that look like? What can we put in place? Each chapter's got a yes, but how at the end. Because too many books get you excited and don't give you any ways of doing it. So each chapter's got some practical stuff too. Retail's at eight ninety nine, but still you can have it for a fiver. But more than anything, friends, today, let's be encouraged. Because Aslan is on the move. I, uh, I joined the Evangelical Alliance just over a year ago and... I've seen people come to faith all over the place. God is moving in the UK. Let's not live with a negative script. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for this chance to come together this morning. And I thank you for the chance I have to share with my friends. And I pray, Lord, that you would move amongst us. I pray we'd have fun. Seems outrageous, Lord, your family would hang out and not have fun. I pray we'd have fun. But I pray that you would move powerfully. And I pray you'd open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you want to say. Whether it's through me or in spite of me, Lord, speak to your children, we ask. Amen. Um, I've been living with a lot of misunderstandings, right? There's lots of things, lots of moments where things don't quite go right. And I had one not that long ago. I was asked, what's your greatest moment of the last year? That's really easy. It was a Friday night. It was about five past six. And a person I like to call a chugger, you know, a charity mugger, came to my front door asking for three pounds a month. I opened the front door. This is what she said. Is your mum home? <laughs> I was so happy. I'm 36, right? I was so happy. So I nearly called my wife over and said Anne and called her mum, but I didn't. I thought that wouldn't go down well. Or another moment of misunderstanding. I was having, um, I was having a bit of tea with my son. My son's six. I said to him, Danny, what do you want to be when you grow up? He says, I want to work for the Evangelical Alliance, Daddy, so I can be with you every day. I said, that's nice. I said, what do you want to do there? He says, I want to be a ninja turtle. Now, um, I've tried to make it clear that there's not a current vacancy for a ninja turtle, but nonetheless, misunderstanding. Another one, um, I think the church thinks two things that are wrong. I think we're beginning to believe some of the narrative of our culture that is Christianity is finished or on the start of being finished in the UK. And I think, secondly, we think the way to change that is to just do more of what we've always done. Now, the, the definition of lunacy is to do things three times and expect different results. I believe that God can transform the United Kingdom, but we might need to do things differently. But I think we've got to start with hope. You know, I think often Christians and football fans are the opposite of each other. I am a massive football fan. I support the same football team as Jesus, AFC Wimbledon, right? People say, why does Jesus support Wimbledon? That's easy. He cares about the ill-treated, the outcast, and those living in exile. But... 
But when it comes to sport, right, football fans are perennially optimistic. You notice this, every summer, that next season's going to be their year. And unless you're Leicester City, it never turns out to be true. You know, the summertime, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be great. You know, England have just had the disaster they've had, but, you know, I'm kind of thinking to myself, if they get the right manager, the right system, next World Cup, oh, you never know. Football fans are perennially optimistic. In contrast, Christians can often be really negative. I don't know any other grouping in the United Kingdom that produce so much bad news about themselves and tell the world about it. If you want an example, I was recently asked to endorse a book called The Church is One Generation Away from Extinction. I said, no. I said, you should probably get Richard Dawkins to write it as well as endorse it. Or I'm a consulting editor for this Christian magazine, and um, they produced this article recently that said, by 2050, the church in the United Kingdom would be considered in the past tense. So I just emailed in and asked them if they'd like me to resign as a consulting editor. They emailed back saying, well, why? I said, well, because you're producing the work of a secularist organisation, not of a Christian one. Because you're telling us how badly we're doing. What other grouping produces stuff and puts energy into telling everyone how badly they're doing? We've got to be people of hope. Now, my starting position is I genuinely believe in my lifetime we will see a move of God in the United Kingdom we've only read or dreamt about. I genuinely believe it. But if it doesn't happen, I'm going to die believing it's coming the next day. But I'm not going to be living with a negative script. Because I go to churches and and they sing about God moving mountains and yet don't believe their next door neighbour could come to faith. Friends, we've got to believe in a God who could transform the whole landscape of the United Kingdom. But that starts with a position of hope. We've got to start as hopeful people. So what would it even look like to begin to change a landscape? Well, obviously, as any preacher does, I've got points, I've got four. So if you've got a Bible, would you just turn it on? And we're going to go to the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Because I've just got four things that I think, honestly, if every Christian took these four on, we could begin to see transformation in the UK we've only dreamt about. And the first thing is, if we want to see real change for Jesus in the UK, we need to go deeper in our relationship with God. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says this, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses! Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. This is an amazing moment. Moses is tendering his father-in-law Jethro's flock. He's done this probably a hundred times. He's been doing it for 40 years. He's in this place that theologians describe as the backside of the desert. This place is a, is a nothing place. And there is a bush that's on fire. Now, acacia bushes riddled the desert. And they would catch light all the time. They'd burn out in about 10 seconds. But the difference here is, this bush doesn't burn out. Because this is not a fire. This is God presencing himself and encountering Moses in a powerful way. And out of this encounter comes a depth and commitment from Moses that goes on to see real transformation in his time. And I just wonder how we're doing in our walk with Jesus. One of the things I love, God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. So if you're five years old or you're 90 years old, you have the same status with God. And whether you've been a Christian forever or a Christian for 10 minutes, there are more depths to be found. 
And people focus so much on church growth. And I just think it's the wrong area to focus on. If there were four W's for church growth, Jesus probably would have given us them. What really matters is health. Because healthy things grow. So how healthy are you you in your walk with Jesus? I, I get concerned about people my age who are Christians often say things like, oh, it's a bit legalistic and old fashioned to spend time with Jesus every day. And I think we're losing spiritual disciplines a little. They need to come back. So I wonder if you do me a favour, would you just put your hand up if you brushed your teeth this morning? Wonderful. Everyone, apart from those who don't put their hand up for anything whenever they're asked, who didn't put their hand up but also brushed their teeth. You strike me, therefore, as quite a legalistic bunch. You all do the same thing every morning for no reason other than the fact everyone else does it. Every day you do the same thing. How old-fashioned, how legalistic? No, you do it to be healthy, right? You want to be healthy in your walk with Jesus. You've got to spend more time with Jesus. We've got to get over making prayers just a monologue and, and not reading the Bible. And you know, When people are biblically illiterate, they base their theology on their feelings. We end up in trouble. We've got to spend more time with Jesus, pursue greater depths, healthy relationship. You want to change your community, love Jesus more, then it pulls out of you. And there's always other things to find. I remember about three and a half years ago, I went for a coffee with uh, the guy who's the pastor of the church where my wife Anne's the assistant minister now. And I sit down for a coffee with him. I hadn't seen him for a while. I've even bought the coffees. First thing he says is, you seem like a gifted guy to me, Gav, but I'm not sure if you're a holy man. I'm like, whoa, I thought we were going to talk about football. He says, how's your prayer life? And I described my prayer life. He said, you don't have a prayer life. He says, you do monologues with God. He says, you tell God what you want, then you stop and you leave the conversation. He says, and you seem to only really pray when you need something. He says, where's the quality of depth of relationship with Jesus in your life? He says, what you need to do, you need to build silence into your life. He said, you've got such a big mouth, sometimes you need to shut it and ask God what he wants to say to you. Do you know what? I welcome that kind of hard love because it works with me. He says, what he does is um, he sits in a chair for half an hour and he sits there in silence and asks God to speak to him. The problem is I can't do that. I can match anyone for energy. I'm like the Duracell bunny, right? I really am. I can match anyone for energy. But the minute I sit still, I fall asleep. And so if I fall asleep in a chair, I'm gone. So I had to find a new way. How can I be quiet before God that he might speak to me? So at first, I took up playing golf on my own. Problem was, golf's quite hard. And I was so bad at it, it did nothing for my holiness, right? So I gave up on that. I then tried running. Not, not really that far, you know, three or four times a week, six or seven miles a time, just little runs. And I went on the side running. And it's changed my life. You know, I don't understand people that run with stuff in their ears. If you notice that, they run with stuff in their ears. The, the world is full of noise. The minute you've got quiet, don't put something else in your ears. So I'm with nothing in my ears. I spend a mile getting myself sorted. Then I say to the Lord, all right, Lord, you've got 40 minutes. What do you want to say to me? You know, it's utterly changed my life. Because when you make space for God to speak to you, he speaks to you. Um, it's been in, sometimes it's been quite clear. Other times, someone's come to mind I've not thought of for a while. You get home, you text them and say, are you okay? I'm just praying for you. They're like, how did you know? I'm like, well, holy man. <laughs> or other times, you know, I run so slowly. Normally, I'm a philistine of nature. But you run so slowly, you actually notice a tree. And you think, whoever made that tree, I need to know him better. But each time, there's an interaction in a moment with God because I've made space for a different discipline to find a greater depth. Now I've done that one, it's time for another one. But in what area could you go deeper with Jesus? 
Because if we want to reach others, we need to be deeper. We need to be healthier Christians because healthy things grow. Secondly, in Exodus 3, verse 10, it says this. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. You know, the second thing we need to do, if we want to see real change, we need to dream bigger. We need to dream bigger. You know, I don't think it's a time for, for pessimists who aren't disappointed because their expectations of God are so low. We need to dream big of what's possible with God. God is massive. And what he could do is so incredible. And we've got to dream bigger. We've got to think beyond what seems possible. We've got to look further than our inadequacies. You know, so many of us um, look at people like Moses and think it was okay for them. They were fine. And when I read the Moses stories to my kids from their children's Bibles or they watch the cartoon, it looks like Moses had no problems. He just got on and he was big and bold. It's not true. The Moses of the Bible was the same as you and me. He had loads of questions, loads of doubts, loads of reasons it wouldn't work. The question is, do the doubts be the end of the story or the start of the story? If you want evidence, okay, we've just read verse 11 of chapter 3. Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Verse 13 he says, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Do you know, chapter 4 verse 1 says, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? 4 verse 10 says, O Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And my absolute favourite of his five questions, 4.13. Oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. We all have questions, we all have doubts. The thing is, are we going to dream bigger for God and step over those questions and in his name take new ground? I guess, are we going to be open-handed or closed-handed Christians? Because My uh, favourite story in the Bible is the feeding of the 5,000. Though really it's the feeding of the 12 to 15,000. Because someone only got, counted the men and got a bit lazy. You know, so there have been as many women and children there. And in the story, Jesus crosses Galilee to get away from people. He either does that in a boat or he walks around the headland. Either way, it's a long way. I've crossed Galilee in a boat with an engine. It took an hour and a quarter. It's a big place. It's much more like the ocean than it is a puddle. And Jesus does this. And 12 to 15,000 people follow him over and around the lake. And they end up in Tabgah. Tabgah is a natural amphitheater in the ground. You can be heard speaking as clearly a mile away as you can a metre away. When you made the world, you don't need microphones. You just have to remember where you left each of your amphitheatres, right? And, and they all gather here. It's taken them hours to get there. Their old school Lucozade's worn off. Their ancient world carbohydrates have burnt off. And the people are hungry. And they sit around and all 12 to 15,000 and their tummies start to rumble. The ground begins to shake. Boom-ti-bump, 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 right? Jesus turns to his youth group. Because the disciples were aged 15 to 22, according to the late John Stott. So the disciples were Jesus' youth group, right? He was 30. Jesus turns to his youth group and says, All right, fellas, who's got lunch? It's an outrageous moment. There's 12 to 15,000 people. And one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, is the only one who does something. He comes up to Jesus in John 6, 8 and 9 with a little boy's pat lunch. And he says to Jesus, I don't know what you can do with this. It looks like nothing, but you're Jesus, so would you mind having a go? And just to clarify, that pat lunch was terrible. Barley loaves, the bread of the poor, 
forgive me, but if you want to put it this way, little value bread, right? It was the cheapest bread you could get. In addition, sardines. It's about 35 degrees in Israel. Sardines and heat, stinking fish. Stinking fish, terrible bread. However, equally, I've done 15 years of working with young people. And young people eat anything. That lunch was so bad, and this young lad who's starving thinks, I don't fancy it, give it to Jesus. That's how bad it was. And Jesus takes it and he feeds the field. And the key in the story is, be open-handed, not closed-handed. If we're closed-handed, we say, what I've got's worth nothing. I don't know what I could do with it. I'm going to keep it to myself. But if we're open-handed, we can say, do you know what, Jesus? I don't know what you can do with this, but you're the saviour of the world, so would you mind having a go with the little I've got? Church, we need to be open-handed, dreaming of what's possible, dreaming bigger for our families, for our communities, for our neighbourhoods, for our churches, for our workplaces, dreaming bigger of what God could do with our small, and not letting experience kill the hope. You know, loads of, loads of my friends I grew up with don't follow Jesus anymore, but not one of them have I given up on them meeting Jesus. Why? Because you know what? God is bigger than anything else. And I have complete hope something will happen. In fact, just recently on Facebook, one of my friends who was most antagonistic about anything Christian I put up there started liking every Christian thing I put up there. I thought, he's either having a laugh or something's happened. Contacted me recently. Gav, I just want you to know, just give my life to Jesus. You know, God is bigger. He's doing stuff. He can move mountains. We've got to allow him to use us to dream bigger too. You know, I've had this in my own life in the last couple of years. Um, I worked at Youth for Christ for 14 years, and it was great. It was a great adventure. You know, if you want to work in the fun part of the church, work with young people. So much more fun. But it was great. But after about 13 years, I was quite comfortable, if I'm honest. I was quite comfortable doing what I was doing. I was giving my life to reaching 7.2 million teenagers in Britain. And God got my case. I had two months in a row, I had prophetic words from different people. Basically said this, God wants to use you across the age groups. He wants to use you in evangelism without just being with young people. He wants to use you across the breadth of his church. He's moving you on from Youth for Christ. Get ready, you're leaving soon. And uh, that was fine. I heard that twice. Um, then it came to the third time I heard it. This time my wife was with me. Someone said exactly the same thing. And Anne turned to me and said, wow, looks like we're going, doesn't it, Gav? She said, has anyone said anything like this before? I'm like, actually, it's happened twice before. She says, you're in trouble later, but for now, let's deal with this. And God just made it quite clear, and then in the end, it was clear, and we've come back south to North London and stuff, and it's great and fine. But you know the hardest thing in it all? Because God got in my case, dream bigger. There's 63 million people in the UK, not 7 million. There's no age group sections in heaven. Get on with it. Try and reach people. And so I've gone to EA, where I've got an opportunity to help churches reach anyone of any age group. And you know, it's brilliant to not have to turn down speaking engagements in case a 35-year-old comes to faith. It's great to be liberated from that. But nonetheless, it was hard to leave where I'd been comfortable for 14 years. And you know, the hardest thing was going in to tell the staff at Youth for Christ. Because Youth for Christ pays badly. You raise half of the bad pay you get. And it's based in Hales Owen, where no one wants to live. So it's quite a hard sell when you're recruiting people. And there were a number of people that had come for different reasons and I'd interacted with. And it's really hard to go and tell those people that you're moving on. And I got in the car to drive there. It's two miles from where we used to live. Not two London miles, you know, two proper miles, ten minutes. And I got in the car to, to drive towards um, the office to tell the staff. I really didn't want to do it. I desperately didn't want to tell them. And you can tell when you get in our car. We only have one car. It's important to be green. You can tell when you get in our car who's been in it last by what comes on the sound system. If it's me, it's talk sport. If it's Anne, it's worship music because she's holier than me. And I got in the car and I turned the car on. 
and straight over the sound system came this. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander as my faith would become stronger in the presence of my Saviour. You know, in that moment, it didn't make it easy, but it reminded me God was with me and therefore we could face what was in front of us. And it was time to dream bigger because whoever else might fall out of your journey, God would remain with you. Friends, you want to change a landscape. You go deeper, you dream bigger. Thirdly, chapter 5, verse 1, and many times afterwards says this. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. The third thing you do is you go together. It's Moses and Aaron. I know that recent Exodus film forgot to put that into context. You know, Moses went on his own. He didn't go on his own. He went with Aaron. And this is really important because Christianity is not for doing alone. John Wesley was riding along on his horse one day. Another fellow rides along next to him, pulls up next to him and says, Sir, you want to serve God and go to heaven? Remember, you can never get there alone. You must either find companions or make them, for the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. There's no such thing as solitary Christianity. There should be no such thing in this place as a lonely Christian. You know, there should be no such thing. We're supposed to do this together. We're supposed to journey with others. We're supposed to go forward alongside one another. You know, a little while ago... um, me and 15 others set a new world record for the longest ever five-a-side football match. What they do is Guinness set the rules and you can have 16 players and 10 have to play at any given time. We played for 48 hours non-stop right? and it was insane. It was awful. If you want to stop loving something you really love, do too much of it. And um, we did this and it was awful but it was great in the end and we raised £55,000 for Youth for Christ at the time and it was lots of fun. But you know what? Only 16 people played football. 38 people took part who didn't kick a ball. We had referees, we had scorekeepers, we had people popping blisters, we had people who had to wake you up after you'd had 20 minutes sleep. You know, that's bad. We had people who were doing ice baths, people who were preparing food, people who were doing massages. We had people who were cheering us on. During the middle of the night, the whole game had to be competitive or you failed. During the middle of the night, there were two people behind each goal with broomsticks. Because if the goalie looked like he was nodding off, you had to poke him in the back. There were all these people taking part. More than twice as many people didn't play football as did, but only the footballers got the credit. And at the end, when there was this little moment where there were a lot of media there and I was, I was doing a little talk, only really I got the credit. And you know what? It took loads of people to do it. You might not get your name up in lights. You might not be the one everyone sees. But if you don't pull your weight, together we won't change a community. It needs all of us. Body works because we all do different stuff. It needs all of us playing our part. You know, it's much more fun together. It's much more fun when you journey with others. And all it takes to be brave is someone else crazy enough to say, yeah, I'll come. You see this in the Bible quite often. Some crazy things happen in the Bible because one person found someone who said, all right, sounds like fun, I'll come. You know, in our house, we don't go to the cinema except to watch things that are animated. Last time I went to the cinema to watch anything I liked was before November 2006. That's when my first child was born. Now we don't go to the cinema for fun with me and my wife because she says, why waste a babysitter on sitting in a dark room watching a film? We can do that at home. So films are new to us. Not when they're in the cinema. Not when they're out on DVD. When they have made the Tesco value £3 rack, they are new to us. So we recently watched a new film. Apparently it came out in 2011. We recently watched a new film. It's the Idris Elba rendition of Mandela. And we're watching a Mandela film. And there's a moment where Winnie Mandela comes out of the courtroom and everyone's against Nelson. 
And she says to Nelson, whatever everyone else says, whatever they're doing, I am with you, I am for you, and I will stand alongside you. Weird little moment. Pause the DVD, we said to each other, do you know what, we'll do that. Because you know what, when you do jobs like I do, you get a lot of stick. Mainly from Christians, by the way. I'm an in-your-face evangelical proclamation evangelist, right? Most of the stick I get is from Christians. Friendly fire is one of the biggest causes of problems within the church. Just stop doing it. If people get things wrong, leave it with God to deal with that. Help them be holy, but stop having to go at everyone because they're not doing it exactly how you would do it. But we need people to stand with us. Who's got your back? Whose back have you got? Who are you journeying with? Within this too, who are you being accountable with? I'm concerned about the UK church. We're losing holiness. We're losing holiness because what we do is we draw a chalk circle around ourselves and the minute anyone questions anything in our life, it's like, oh, don't judge me. Is it not ever possible it's not judgment, but it's iron sharpening iron? Find relationships with people where people can point out to you in love the things you need to change or grow in or develop in. Because this judgment word keeps everyone at arm's length, but it means no one gets more holy. I go to this um, fellas group, there's a few of us that go to it, six in the morning. And it's outrageous because we're all competitive. So the only rule is you have to answer every question you're asked. So we compete for who can ask the most difficult accountability question that makes everyone feel awkward. But you know what? We deal with stuff before it becomes big. Because if you don't deal with stuff when it's little, it becomes big and it'll kill you. It's like tigers. You ever see a cute little tiger? A little tiger cub running around. Do you human being give him a bottle of milk? It's lovely, isn't it? Oh, he's so cute. Give him a hug. It's like a moving teddy bear. Isn't he lovely? Do you know what that little tiger becomes? A big, dirty tiger, right, that will maul you. If we don't deal with stuff in our lives when it's little, it gets big and then it consumes you. We, we mustn't lose the art of accountability. It's always possible. Someone's, if someone's got your back and they are for you, they're not judging you, they're trying to help you. And we've got a journey together within that. So we go deeper, we dream bigger, we go together. And finally, in Exodus 14, verse 21, it's all through him. It says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's go away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. We need to follow his ways, let him lead us. We can only do so much ourselves, but with God's anointing, impossible is nothing. You know, we could do anything with God's anointing. God is fighting for us. And I think often there's, there can be two types of Christians. There can be those who, who don't think they're good enough. You think, why would God use you? Of course God wants to use you. When God made you, he threw the mould away, not because it was broken, but one of you was enough. Get really close to any human being. You thank God that they were made. You thank God too, he only made one of them. Why? Because we only needed one of them. But you're amazing and you're brilliant and God wants to use you. And don't let so many other lies around you make you think you're not worth it. Then there's people like me, who, um, until I was 25, my biggest weakness was an utter unawareness of any weaknesses. Then um, I remember Anne wanting to have children, and that seemed like a good idea. And after a few years, nothing had happened. So I felt really sorry for her, because she clearly had a fertility issue. And so um, we went through all the tests and stuff, and it wasn't her, it was me. I remember being told that I, I couldn't really have children, but to keep trying, because you never know. And 
A month after we were told that by the doctors, Anne got pregnant with Amelie. Isn't that amazing? You know, Saviour, he can move mountains, he can impregnate women from sterile men. But then all, I remember a couple of years later, she got pregnant again, and we were so excited. Miracle baby, this is amazing. We went for the scan. And just to help you fellas that haven't had kids yet, when you go to the scan, just pretend you can see it. It's just easier that way. And secondly, even though it looks like a combination between a sultana and a mushroom, right, it is cute. So I'm there looking at the scan, trying to make out it's cute, but there's no noise at the ultrasound scan because there's no heartbeat. And the midwife turns to us and says, Reverend and Mrs. Calver, I'm really sorry. Your baby's died in the womb. And I'm like, I remember struggling so much. Like, Lord, what's going on here? What's happening? And Anna took this little process to clear the baby out and stuff, and it was really hard. And then she got pregnant again a couple of years later. By this point, I've accepted I've been healed. You know, every time that anyone said, if you want to get prayed for, for fertility issues, I was up the front. It's the only type of physical healing where no matter how charismatic you are, it's inappropriate to lay on hands. But you did get prayed for. And... And Anne got pregnant again, and at 18 weeks in the womb, we were told our child had a 5% chance of survival. And in the end, he had nine blood transfusions in the womb. Cambridge University studied us. There were two donors on the blood list with the right blood. It was insanely awful. My wife was in hospital every other day, having blood tests and scans. I love the NHS, by the way. Would never moan about that. He was born 10 weeks early. We couldn't, we couldn't hold him for about three months, for three weeks, sorry. He was in an incubator for a couple of months. It was really hard. Although if you saw him this morning, I'll tell you something. Looks like he's eaten a premature baby. He's quite a unit. But, but during that process, I realised my brokenness and I realised God's greatness. It's really important, not that we think we're worms, but that we realise how great God is compared to us. That human strength will take you so far, but holding on to Jesus will take you anywhere. And it's through him coming upon us. Whether you think you're worth nothing, God wants to say to you, you're amazing, I want to use you. If you think you're perhaps worth more than you should be, um, God wants to say to you, actually, you you need to be broken before me and we'll journey together. But either way, we'll see great things happen through him. Because you can only get so far with your own strength. I've seen it. I graduated Bible college 15 years ago. For the first five years, all my mates who went into ministry were going for it. Then they started dropping away. And, and most of them will say it's at a moment where that I, I need to press deeper into Jesus that I've realized I just didn't have enough in the locker. Friends, we've got to go deeper into him, allowing him to use us. Anointing changes everything. You can do stuff in your own strength and it's all well and good and it's fine, but anointing changes everything. It's just about all I can do in my own strength at the front is I can make people laugh. But I can't lead anyone to Jesus. That's God. Anointing changes everything. Even when you do it badly, if you do it at the right heart, anointing changes everything. I realise this because my worst ever sermon was nine years ago. It was in North Wales. It was awful. I went to do this youth event. I'd been promised hundreds of young people. I got there. I have more fingers than there were young people. Didn't even need my toes to count the people there. However, the church had hired in a 10-foot high stage. And they insisted I still preached from it because they'd paid for it. So I went on this stage and preached to this um, group, let's say. I did it in a bad mood. I did it not wanting to be there, but I still did it. I then got given an envelope before driving home the many hours home. You know, before bank transfers, you lived in the world of the ministry of envelopes. You never quite knew what someone had given you, but the one rule I had was don't open it till you get home. Decide with Jesus how it's gone before you decide by the size of the check, right? I drive all the way home from North Wales. I open the envelope, £5 book token. That doesn't go in a petrol tank and I don't like reading, right? Good. It was awful. It was awful. Then this January, I preached in Stoke. This lad came up to me after I preached. 
He says, do you remember that youth event in North Wales? I thought he was winding me up. I'm like, yeah, I remember it, mate. He <laughs> says, I gave my life to Jesus that night. He said, and three weeks ago, I did a youth mission. I'm a youth worker now. 32 young people from non-Christian backgrounds gave their lives to Jesus. You know, you only have to get one Samaritan woman to reach a village. Anointing changes everything. Or another way, um, I grew up the son of a preacher man, right? I'm from the kind of Christian mafia. And um, therefore, the most rebellious thing I could do as a teenager was anything that would annoy them, my parents. One of the things that annoyed them a little was it didn't last very long, but for a few weeks, I went out with the daughter of an imam. I figured that's one way to wind them up. And recently, she found me on Facebook. She'd seen a YouTube video of me preaching at Spring Harvest, and she's going to go on an alpha course. Because she can't believe that that boy becomes that adult. Do you know the answer to that is Jesus. When Jesus gets hold of your life, he changes your life. He makes you different. Friends, we've got to allow him to come upon us by his spirit that our efforts would go further, that God could work through us. I really believe in my lifetime we will see a mega move of God. I really believe in my lifetime the United Kingdom will be transformed. And if it isn't, I believe it's coming the day after I leave here. But I believe it's coming. But it takes a bunch of us who are prepared to go deeper, to be healthier Christians. A bunch of us who will dream bigger, who won't let the, the obstacles in the way be the end of the story, but will dream bigger for what's possible. Even today, maybe some dreams that you've let die or some hopes that have been stolen, maybe they need to come back. But it needs a bunch of us that go together. The evil one can easily take one of us out on our own. But together we're strong. And a bunch of us who believe that by the Spirit coming upon our efforts things could happen that we could only dare dream or imagine. Perhaps it's time to pray a world-changing prayer. It's quite a simple one. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander as my faith would become stronger in the presence of my Saviour. Let's pray, shall we? I wonder if just for this moment you'd all just close your eyes for a moment. I, uh, in a moment there's a, a response from more of us, but I can't come somewhere like this and I can't speak in front of people and not give an opportunity if there's someone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as their personal Lord and Saviour. If there's someone here who doesn't know what it is to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, or, or maybe you're not sure. Or perhaps there's someone here who, who's playing at it. You're, you're wearing the badge, Christian, but you're nowhere with Jesus. The start of your greater depth with Jesus is coming back to him. Today, you just know where with Jesus, and it's time to start again. It's time to recommit your life, start again, say, I want to be a follower of yours, Jesus. Everyone's eyes are shut, no one's looking at you. It's just for the benefit of me, so I know who I'm praying for. If this morning you either want to surrender your life to Jesus for the first time, or recommit it because you know where with Jesus, would you just put your hand up where you are, if that's you this morning, just so I can see it quickly. It's wonderful. So you can you just leave it up if it's the first time? It's fantastic. We'll put those down. I'm just going to pray a prayer on that, and then I'm sure Nigel will give some advice as to who you might need to speak to afterwards. But we're going to just pray, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that this morning in your house, some people have made decisions for you. Lord, I pray that in the future there'd be no need to recommit, because these commitments would last. For those for whom it may be the first ever time, Lord, I pray that you would protect them. I pray you protect everyone in the next 72 hours, that those decisions would last, that they would find someone to journey with, that they would realise that there's a celebration going on in heaven, but also, Lord, that their lives need never be the same again. 
And I pray you would be as close tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. as you are now. Thank you, Jesus. And then secondly, it's not like me to do a quiet response, but I just have a real sense that, that the Lord's just been sharing different things with different ones of us. That for some of us, there's a real challenge actually to work out how we go to the next level in our walk with Jesus, how we go deeper. I think for others, there's a challenge to begin dreaming bigger again. And perhaps to rekindle dreams for things you've given up on being possible. For others still, you've become a bit of an island in your faith. There should be no such thing as a lonely or isolated Christian. Maybe you need to reach out to someone. But maybe for others too, we need to relinquish control and say, Spirit of the living God, fall on me and use my efforts. In church, we do so much for people. But I don't need to be your mediator. Jesus came that you didn't need that. So we're just going to spend a moment in quiet, interacting with God directly, asking him for what it is he's challenging you over that you really need, and praying that things might be different as a result. Just spend a moment in quiet, shall we? Lord, I want to pray that each person here today would know you better tomorrow than they do today. I pray we'd know you better in a month than we do tomorrow and that we would keep going deeper with you. I pray that our relationship with you would know no limits in its intimacy, in its depth, and in its consistency. I just ask, Lord, you would show us practical ways of going deeper with you. I pray too, Lord, you would release bigger dreams. Help us to start seeing workplaces and schools and and streets as, as mission fields. Help us to start believing of what might be possible for our families and for those we love. Help us to not limit you by the lies of the world. And just like Moses, help our questions not to be the end of our journey, but might we step over those with you. Lord, might we go together with others, even today, Lord, highlight to people if they need to reach out to someone. Might this be a place where no one would be isolated? And Lord, might you take our efforts and through anointing and by your spirit, might you use them to go so much further than they would if they were dependent on all we've got in our locker. Finally, by your spirit, would you lead us to a place where our trust is boundless? Would you take us to a depth that we would never thought possible? And would we always remember that you're with us? Might we seek to bless you before we seek to be blessed by you again. Amen. Yeah, it's a wonderful response. Thank you. You've been ministered to. Yeah? No? Yeah. We're going to go for it and dream bigger and work together. Yeah, let's just close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for what we've heard today. And Lord, we pray that uh, the stumbling blocks won't stumble us, but we'll have our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus, and we'll get out of that boat and walk on water. And Lord, help us to be those kind of people that love other people into your kingdom. Lord, help us to move forward with real hope and expectation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.